from KQED. The 2015 death of Catherine Steinle created a furor over undocumented immigration and sanctuary cities. In this episode of Cued Up, we go back over the case, dig into the surprising verdict, and examine how a death on a downtown San Francisco pier became a political lightning rod. I'm Sandhya Dirks. KQED's Alex Emsley has been following this case almost from the beginning. And he says to understand what happened on that day in July 2015, and to understand what happened in the courtroom, you have to go back to the Embarcadero of San Francisco on a beautiful summer day to Pier 14. You know, on this particular day, uh, Catherine Steinle um, had invited some family over. Her father and a family friend uh, came to visit her. And it was a sunny afternoon, late afternoon. Um, and they were doing that thing that we all do, kind of strolling around the Embarcadero. I think they spent some time at the ferry building. They walked toward the ballpark. They end up back on the pier and they're taking uh, photographs. Uh, Catherine Steinle is taking selfies of um, her, her group uh, with the Bay Bridge in the background. Um, and then suddenly there's a loud bang. She falls to the ground. And then the rest of the story gets told from uh, her father, James Steinle. We heard a pop and Kate turned and said, uh, help me, Dad, and I did all I could, and, and here we are. He couldn't help her. Um, her abdominal aorta was severed um, from a, a shot to her lower back, um, and she was pronounced dead later that evening at San Francisco General Hospital. Within an hour, the police arrested a suspect, but that suspect's identity and, and what it, I guess, meant to the perceptions around this case didn't come out for, for a day or two. ABC 7 News has obtained new video tonight showing the arrest of the man accused of killing a woman on Pier 14 this week. Our sources close to the investigation say 45-year-old Francisco Sanchez admitted shooting Kate Steinle and that it was accidental. This man, then known as Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, he does have several aliases, and that is a um, legitimate one in the federal court system. He had a history of deportations and illegal reentry into the U.S. He was a he's a Mexican citizen. He does not have um, documentation to be in the United States uh, legally or with authorization. He's an undocumented immigrant. He's an undocumented immigrant and has been for some time. Um, so if you look at his criminal history and what he's been convicted for, um, there are drug crimes, uh, possession charges uh, kind of sprinkled throughout the past a few decades anyway, and um, a repeated uh, deportation caught um, either at the border or shortly after he comes back into the U.S. and then he spends federal prison time for illegal reentry. Instantly, this becomes national news. My opponent wants sanctuary cities. But where was the sanctuary for Kate Steinle? The first I can recall hearing about it was through a, the statements made by then candidate for President Donald Trump. That, that to me was the moment that I realized that this... It was bigger um, than just what, what a, had happened. Yeah, what, what, was, what was basically a local homicide investigation at that point was going to be highly politicized at the national uh -huh. level when something's getting into a presidential election. I'm going to get the bad ones out. The, the hardworking, peaceful, 
yeah. undocumented uh, immigrants here. Illegal the, the, immigrants. Are we talking about the illegal? The heroin problem comes right over the southern border. Not going to happen anymore. The first thing I need is a wall. We're building the wall. We find out who the suspect is. Donald Trump starts, you know, tweeting about it because it fits into this larger narrative that is sort of forming inside the Trump campaign. That, in fact, the Trump campaign was founded on. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Uses this particular case to kind of back up these claims he's been making about this threat from across the border of undocumented, uh, what he calls illegal, basically Latinos, Mexican nationals coming over here and doing bad stuff. It begins to uh, spread across conservative media, uh, Breitbart, Fox News. Let me tell you something the mainstream media will never tell you tonight. It was San Francisco sanctuary city policies that killed Kate Steinle. They did not obey the law. They followed these ridiculous liberal policies. And because of their stupidity and their, quote, form of justice and caring more about the rights of illegal convicted felons, tonight Kate Steinle is dead. What do we all do for a living, right? We simplify complicated ideas. But in this case, I think that you can run into mischaracterizing very easily if you're not willing to get down to, to, to very specific things about what happened and what the evidence does show, may show, could show. How did this guy, Zarate, end up on that pier on that day? How did he get there? Let's start with April of 2015. So, um, I don't know, a few months before Catherine Steinle's death. Um, Garcia Zarate had completed his most recent federal prison term for illegal reentry um, and was basically he had a release date. His federal sentence was done. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, had a request with the Federal Bureau of Prisons to let them know when this guy was available to be deported. They instead contacted San Francisco because they had noticed that there was a very old, a 20-year-old bench warrant seeking Garcia Zarate's uh, custody and presentation in San Francisco to answer for um, a low-level marijuana charge. And what's interesting is he had been released from federal custody before while this warrant was out there. And, you know, the feds hadn't looked at this warrant and had sent him to ICE, had sent him to ICE I think twice you, you mentioned. At least twice, yeah. And this time, something different happens, and he gets sent to San Francisco. Who knows why uh, this defendant was not brought to San Francisco previously. And this time, who knows but, why he was. And this time, it's it's an open question as to why he was. But on a computer somewhere, um, this time his name po- popped up as, as having a warrant in San Francisco. The, the day after he was uh, brought to San Francisco, the marijuana charge was dismissed. There was no evidence in the case. If there had been, it had been destroyed It had been 20 ago. years, yeah. So the district attorney moved to dismiss the charges. The judge agreed. And a couple of weeks later, Mr. Garcia Zarate was released onto the streets of San Francisco. He was a free man. So Zarate ends up on that park bench or that pier bench on that July day. 
He ends up there without a violent history. He doesn't have a history of violent crime in his past. He doesn't really have a history, you know, a criminal history of anything else other than drug use and illegal reentry. On paper, there is not a precedent for this guy being a threat or a danger. There's this presentation of this person as someone who was inclined toward criminal activity. But I just want to put out there that there's no evidence from his history or anything that anyone can point to as hard evidence that he ever tried to make money through crime other than the crime of illegally reentering the United States. But when he was here, he appeared to try to uh, to, to take legitimate jobs. He's worked as a farm worker, I think, a lot in, in Texas. Um, and, and when he was in San Francisco, he was trying to collect cans. He wasn't um, there's there's no evidence, there's no indication that he was trying to steal, that he was trying to, to create sort of a criminal pose- uh, profession for himself in any way. When he is on that bench, before the shooting happens, he has a gun. How that gun comes to be in his possession um, is it's a huge part of the case. I just want you to kind of take us through that really quickly because this brings the feds back into it. Yeah, in a different way that they would rather not, um, I think, be associated with. How this gun moves from where it was to where it ended up. Well, let's start with where was the gun? Where did it sort of start out? It's actually in El Centro, California, which is quite a ways away from San Francisco, California. A pretty long day's drive. This is a place that's uh, right on the um, southern California border with Mexico. And it's in the possession of a U.S. Bureau of Land Management ranger. It's his backup weapon. On the morning of June 27th, 2015, Ranger John Wojcicki leaves El Centro, California, theoretically early in the morning um, for a special duty assignment in Helena, Montana. Um, But he leaves on his day off because he wants to take a detour and uh, he wants to, to basically start the trip by heading up the California coast with his uh, then girlfriend and uh, three children. I I should hasten to say, I don't know that he wanted to take a detour, but I know that San Francisco is not on the way to Helena, Montana from El Centro, California. It's tricky because it becomes hearsay. It's sort of second, third hand. Uh, Ranger John Wachowski uh, never consented to talk to me himself to tell me his story. Um, But I think he's told others that he had this opportunity to, hey, I could start this trip on my day off. Yeah, I have a little extra time. And drive up the California coast uh, uh, with his um, adult female companion and three children. They end up in San Francisco sometime in the evening, you know, late evening, uh, approaching 10 p.m., and they're hungry. They want to stop for dinner. He thought maybe near AT&T Ballpark would be a good place to find a family-friendly restaurant. And I just want to say right now, just so, like, for those of you who aren't familiar with San Francisco, AT&T Park, which is where the Giants play, it is just down the Embarcadero from the pier, uh, Pier 14, um, where the kind of events of July happen. So we're, we're talking about the same basic kind of stretch of, of waterfront road. It's kind of a, a small area that we're talking about where all of these uh, pieces kind of start to fall into place here. And uh, so, so John Wachowski parked his car again about 10 p.m., went and grabbed a, a quick dinner. When he and his group returned to their car, they noticed that the window smashed out and um, he looks under his driver's side seat where he had stashed 
a backpack with his backup weapon and a bunch of you know law enforcement paraphernalia and, and his uh, credentials, his badge. So a lot of important stuff. And it was gone. You know, and he made a police report right away. And he also called his own agency. But Are you supposed to leave your backup weapon in a backpack in your car? I mean, was he kind of going against some basic policy other than just kind of common sense? It's a complicated question. I think the ultimate answer to that question was John Wachowski did not violate Bureau of Land Management policies in place at the time. You said at the time, does that mean that policy has changed? Yes, and I think it is, uh, I don't have to think, it is very safe to say that the policy changed because of this incident. The gun's path disappears, but somehow it ends up in the possession of Jose Inés Garcia Zarate on July 1st um, at approximately, you know, just before 6.30 p.m. And seconds before 6.30 p.m. is when the shot went off and Catherine Steinle was, was fatally shot in the back. Our top story, sad breaking news tonight in the Kate Steinle murder case. The illegal immigrant, Garcia Zarate, who killed Kate Steinle on that pier in San Francisco, was acquitted just a short time ago of murder and manslaughter charges. From day one, this case was used as a means to foment hate, to foment division, and to foment a program of mass deportation. It was used to catapult a presidency along that philosophy of hate of others. And I believe today is a vindication for the rights of immigrants. The verdict that came in today was not one we were hoping for, but I think it's unequivocal. Both sides gave it their all. Both sides had good lawyers in court. They presented the case the way that they did. And at the end of the day, it's the jury that determines what the verdict is. And the jury came back with the verdict that they did. And there's been, I think, a fair amount of surprise around this verdict. Why are people surprised? Why is this uh, a kind of a shocking re- re- result? I mean, we bring our, our preconceived notions to anything that we're evaluating. So it's hard to say why, why everybody might be surprised. I can say... Um, that I was surprised that the jury did not give more deference to the prosecution's analysis and presentation of the evidence. From the prosecution's perspective, and of course I'm not in their shoes, so I don't know, but I think maybe one way to look at how they looked at this is if you step back, kind of get rid of the nuance and just say, what happened here? It's still the case that this man fired a shot that killed someone who he didn't know and who had no expectation that they were going to be, you know, the subject of violence in that moment. It was a sudden, um, uh, a tragic death. And I think that the prosecution wanted, as we might discuss about a jury, wanting, you know, a motive for that. They wanted an explanation. A reason. The reason was that this guy must have wanted to kill this woman. Right. I mean, they, they, they and they I think they tried pretty hard to figure out what could have been his reason 
for and, killing this woman. And to prove that he wanted, you know, they tried to prove that he wanted to kill this woman. Mm-hmm. Whereas the defense's theory of the case was about sort of more chaotic, <laughs> meaningless world in which this was a complete and tragic accident with so many small factors, um, including everything from the feds releasing him back to San Francisco to, you know, a Bureau of Land Management uh, officer from El Centro happening to park his car where a series of robberies happened. Like all of these little things that lead to this tragic death and this tragic loss of life that don't have any real larger meaning or motive, but all lead up to this terrible moment. And I mean, that's hard for humans to accept. Humans like stories. Well, and I think a simpler explanation, too, is sometimes something we're the looking right for. one, yeah. right? I yeah. guess. So, I mean, you could say, I don't, I don't think you could always say that's the right one, but I think it is, and I, I'll put myself in here, too. I mean, it was easier for me for a long time to believe that this was some sort of an intentional killing than to believe the accident theory. What is some of the evidence that backs up the defense's theory of the case? Well, the biggest piece of physical evidence was the fact that this was a ricochet shot. The ricochet is undisputed, right? But what it means could be in dispute and certainly was in dispute in this case. The shot bounced off of the concrete or hit the concrete. It made a little divot. But 12 to 15 feet away from where he was sitting, the shot hits the concrete, and it traveled 78 more feet, or a total of 90 feet, to hit Catherine Steinle. The way that this was presented by, you know, experts that the defense called is that it would be more, um, I guess, believable to say, well, you missed by five feet. But there, but it ricocheted five feet. Then you missed and, by seventy. And then, but then you, that that you missed by seventy-eight feet. But it still somehow hit the target, which is exactly what the prosecution's argument was through a crime scene investigator that introduced it in his testimony. What the evidence in this case meant to the prosecution was that um, this defendant was playing his own private game of Russian roulette that he had found the gun, he had come into possession of the gun elsewhere, that it was not on the pier. When he got into possession of this gun, he was affected by the power of it. He was drunk on power from having a firearm and decided that he wanted to kill someone. And so he went to Pier 14, which was a crowded place where he could see a lot of people. And he sat in a chair that spins 360 degrees. And he sat there spinning and looking at people as they passed by. Um, And in the prosecution's argument, deciding who to shoot with his gun drunk on this power. Um, And they did present a photograph uh, taken, you know, a few moments before uh, the shooting that incidentally, again, captured uh, Garcia Zarate as he's sitting in this chair. He's kind of turning around, um, looking over his own shoulder at Catherine Steinle, who's taking a picture, a picture of her father and a family friend. Um, you know, at that point, she's, we can't really tell the distance, but they're, they're relatively close to each other. Let's, I don't know, 10, 20 feet or so. Um, and the prosecution said, look, here he is looking at her, selecting Catherine Steinle as his target. That was the argument that the lead prosecutor, Diana Garcia, um, really, really hammered on in her closing arguments. Um, but they have to prove that. Well, they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think the way that that breaks down is the jury looking at a 
the totality of the case and evidence, if they felt that there was no other reasonable explanation other than that, then then that charge would have fit, right? Then that, that would lead to a first-degree uh, murder conviction. But if they felt that there was any other reasonable explanation, even if it wasn't the most reasonable explanation, um, but that favored the defendant uh, in a way greater than, than that story does, then... I don't know, I guess tie goes to the defense, right? I mean, then the reasonable doubt standard kicks in and the prosecution has not met its burden. And so then there isn't a conviction on first degree murder. But there also isn't a conviction on second degree murder and there isn't a conviction on manslaughter. Yes. And I've spoken to a few, um, you know, legal scholars about this at this point, and they felt like there's at least a a potential that those convictions that a conviction for second degree murder or involuntary manslaughter could have come out of this case. But the prosecution didn't choose to focus on that in their closing arguments. They didn't lead the jury to that conclusion. They didn't marshal the facts, as they say, toward that conviction um, or toward a conviction on either one of those charges. They put all their eggs in one basket, and that was the murder one charge. The big thing that makes it unique is the surrounding politicization of the murder by President Trump and other conservative Republicans, right? So the case has become this kind of rallying cry for why sanctuary cities are a bad idea and lead to these terrible outcomes. Laura Bazelon. Laura Bazelon. Is a University of San Francisco law professor. Irrespective of the actual facts of the case, there was this bigger narrative about it that fit into the platform that Donald Trump was running on, which is that illegal immigrants come here and commit horrible crimes and our immigration system is broken and we need to expel these people. And he used this case as an example of what he was talking about. In some ways, I thought, well, okay, maybe this trial is done, so this narrative will will sort of disappear, and Trump will find, maybe maybe the president will find a different case to focus on, um, to talk about violence uh, committed by immigrants or, or or what have you. President Trump tweeting this morning after an undocumented immigrant was found not guilty of murder in the 2015 shooting death of Kate Steinle. The president's latest tweet. Uh, posted moments ago reads, the Kate Steinle killer came back and back over the weekly protected Obama border, always committing crimes and being violent, and yet this info was not used in court. His exoneration is a complete travesty of justice. Build the wall. The way that this case ended and the outcome of it seems to have just stoked the fire um, of, of outrage at San Francisco sanctuary city policy, sanctuary policies in general, this defendant and and over the, the killing of Catherine Steinle. It hasn't dissipated and I don't know, maybe it never will. Garcia Zarate has been indicted on two federal charges that are connected with the killing of Kate Steinle. Immigration officials have said they want to deport him, and he remains now in state custody. I'm Sandhya Dirks. You're listening to Cued Up. Thanks to KQED's Alex Emsley, who has been following this case since its early days. And thanks to Devin Katayama for help with editing this piece. Cued Up's senior editor is Julia McAvoy. Its executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. Thanks for listening.